0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now.
1: When shorts were short only concerns itself with what was actually a very narrow window in football history when teams wore, well, short shorts. The podcast will only cover football from 1954 when Umbro made their first England kit with shorter shorts, a design that was widespread within English football by the mid-50s to 1992 when short shorts were all but finished as Umbro's baggy shorts for Tottenham's new kit ahead of the 91 FA Cup final quickly caught on. I'm Daniel Ruiz-Tyson. This is when shorts were short. If the shorts weren't short, we don't talk about it. Euro 92 was a strange competition. The last major international football tournament played before the no pass back rule was introduced that summer. And to be honest, after some of the football scene in Sweden that year, that new and at the time controversial ruling couldn't come soon enough. Relying on my memory here, which may not be quite as reliable as it had long been, I recall Germany's opening match at Euro 92 against the former Soviet Union now briefly called the CIS, Commonwealth of Independent States. And the ultra-defensive CIS had a free kick just inside the German half, in the second half, I think, which ended rather quickly with the ball being played back to their own keeper. It wasn't a vintage Euros. This was no Euro 84. It wasn't even a Euro 80. There was... One great game, the semi-final between the Danes and the Dutch, who, in my opinion, were actually better and stronger than they had been in 88 when they'd won it. The rest of the competition, I think, was forgettable. England turned up having turned qualification into a surprisingly dramatic moment given they'd controlled their qualifying group also featuring Ireland and Poland from start to finish. Going into the tournament Graham Taylor's side had only lost once in his two-year reign a home friendly to world champions Germany at the start of the 91-92 campaign but this side through a combination of international retirements and the, I think, inexplicable exclusion of some of the leading England players of the day, such as Waddle and Beardsley, plus injuries to the country's most outstanding talents in Gascoigne and Barnes, as well as late pullouts and a bizarre run of injuries to three or four specialist right backs who missed Euro ninety two was far removed from the England that had pushed the Germans all the way in that Turin semi-final twenty four months earlier. Two years after Italia 90, 29 years before Gareth Southgate steered his young team to the Euro 2020 final, what we were about to see unfold was the poorest England side in living memory in the worst Euros I've seen. My guest for this episode is Harry Harris, a seasoned watcher of the national team during his four decades writing for the London Evening News, the Daily Mail, the Daily Mirror, the Daily and Sunday Express, among others, as well as writing something like 80 football related books. Speaking just a few days before Euro 2020 kicked off, Harry joined me in looking back at where it went so wrong for England, the injuries, the retirements, the exclusions, oh and the... No little matter of the estrangement between the manager Graham Taylor and his captain and star player Gary Lineker. Lineker's form under Taylor had arguably matched his early England form during the years when Glenn Hoddle was in the England side. But by the spring of 92, with his fearsome pace perhaps no longer what it was and with a young Alan Shearer on the rise, Lineker's place was not as secure as it had once been. This is Harry Harris and Euro 92. So, Harry, let's start with Graham Taylor taking the England job after Italian 90. He'd openly coveted the England job and he'd got it on the back of an impressive decade's work at Watford and then his revival of Aston Villa. But his direct style of football was questioned uh, throughout his managerial career. At the time, was he the right man to succeed Bobby Robson and who, if any, were his rivals for the job?
0: Yeah, I, I think he was the uh, he was in the right place at the right time. Uh, his CV at club level was uh, unparalleled, really. You know, he, he took a little club like Watford from fourth division to runners up in the in the old first division uh, and to the FA Cup final uh, on, on such a small budget, and, and developed so many brilliant players there, including really John Barnes. So, yeah, I, I don't think there were any rivals. I think um, there, there was no. Adverse criticism from myself and the media, uh, you know, leading any campaigns against his appointment. I just think there was there wasn't really anything out there to suggest there should have been anybody else. I think the media felt at one point, uh, having failed so miserably in the Euros in 88, uh, that Bobby Robson wasn't the right man at that time. We were all proved wrong by Bobby uh, and good luck to him. You know, everyone deserves another chance. He got it. By the skin of his teeth, I think he probably got it. And, uh, you know, we all know what happened in the World Cup in 1990. But after that, you know, Bobby Robson should really have stayed on. Prior to the World Cup, he'd already made made a decision to go for a variety of reasons that we're probably all aware of. The FA, as usual, scratching around trying to find uh, a replacement. And I think Graham Taylor was uh, up for the job, ready for the job. And it was a, a simple, seamless thing for the FA to appoint him.
1: We'll look at where England are in 1992 in a moment. First, let's just see where you are in your career at this point. You, you're still at the Mirror. I think you started at the Mail, did you, in terms of the it's National?
0: E- oh, e- evening news then the Mail. Yeah, I was a chief football writer at the Mirror at this particular point in time. And um, the media, large sections of the media, ha- ha- had a very good relationship with Graham Taylor. Um, I think he was a very approachable guy. His dad was a journalist. Uh, He understood journalists. He appreciated them, respected them. And uh, I think we all got on very well.
1: How long had you been following the national team by this point?
0: My my, um, remit was to follow the national team and the leading club sides in in Europe and at home. So, yes, I was um, there with England every single step of the way, every game, every training session, every press conference, every trip abroad, every the manager went abroad looking at opposition you know a, a, a small group of the football writers chief football writers went with him so really um at that point the way the media worked you, you almost felt part of the entourage and it was great advantage in, in many ways but um a, a lot of people felt that you, you were you were almost like a camp follower you were too close to the england team at that time you travel on the same plane you went to the training sessions you stood on the touchline and you could shout across to the players um, and have a chat to them when they came off for a drink of water it was a completely different atmosphere uh, and relationship that you you have now you could you could stop and have a chat with the carousel pick up your luggage uh, and might pick up a story or two who knows but the fact is you you had a more intimate relationship than uh, i think the, the the media do now in the, in the digital age
1: you mentioned a few minutes ago Euro 88. We know what happened at Euro 88, but you look at that squad that England took to Euro 88 and you had some players such as Barnes and Beardsley who were in the form of their, their club lives with Liverpool that year. And, you know, I mean, Terry Butcher, I think, was the notable absence through injury uh, for that tournament. But that England squad was a really, really strong squad and it was just shocking what happened is—is is, is that a fair assessment? Because it was arguably a, a better squad than Mexico '86.
0: Indeed, I mean, it was complete whitewash, wasn't it? I mean, yeah. it, was, like, it was unbelievable. Uh, and the capitulation against Russia at the end—it um, saw the end of Glenn Hoddle's international career, and it would probably have seen the end of any other international manager's career. Uh, and how Bobby Robson survived it, I don't know. I think the media were very much uh, split about whether he should go, whether he should stay. At that point. There were one or two very, very close to Bobby and clearly were backing him to stay. Those who were taking a more perspective view of, of, of things felt that really any international manager, uh, the way they performed in with the squad that at his disposal, would not have continued.
1: We know what happens to Graham Taylor in terms of his treatment at the hands of some of the media post-92. As a boy, I remember going to England games at Wembley during Bobby Robson's uh, reign, particularly... Uh, around 83, 84, the failure to qualify for the 84 Euros and the abuse, well, the abuse the team were getting at Wembley from from fans. But I mean, Bobby Robson, I I don't think I've seen a manager get a harder time in the media than Bobby Robson did during his time as England manager. Have Have I got that wrong? Because we remember Bobby Robson now rightly for... The, the exceptional manager that he was and his achievements in club football and getting England to Italian 90. But he did have a rough ride as England manager for much of his eight years.
0: Oh, there's no question about it. Um, and a lot of it um, was justified. A lot of it wasn't. You know, clearly there, there were problems with Bobby, you know, um, he, he was an endearing character, inspiring in many ways, but in other ways he was, he, he was quite odd. that He couldn't quite remember who was who and who's, who, which player's name was applicable to what he was doing, so so to to many on the outside he he came across as a bit of a bumbling character and uh, not really the the right one for a manager to lead the national team. But there was something about him, you know, I I followed um, uh, his Ipswich Town team throughout Europe uh, at their peak uh, and got to know Bobby very well. The kobolds at Ipswich were, were very welcoming hospitality. was great there. You'd go into the board remark for a match. You'd, you'd see the chairman and, and Bobby, and, and you've got a good relationship with them. And you saw a lot more from the inside in, 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 as a journalist in those days. And, and travelling with Ipswich, you could see the quality of football that they were playing, the, the quality of football he brought from Ipswich, the England team. In many ways, he was the perfect thing of a manager. But when we got to 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 Graham Taylor, as I'm sure you will eventually, we, we got into this uh, point about the impossible job. And do a lot like that? The uh, the documentary um, people kind of perceived England as the impossible job. I don't think it was, but um, uh, I think Graham Taylor turned it into it to a degree. I think that came before him with, with Bobby Robson. You know, there, there was certain aspects that were impossible for an England manager to cope with as the media turned into a more personal attack rather than uh, an analytical one on the way the game had been played or, or the manager had picked his team or the strategy that he, that he used and the personnel at his disposal, selections of squads. That was one aspect of it. But then then it turned very personal. And I think Bobby Robson suffered very badly uh, at one stage. Uh, and it's admirable the way he came through it. I mean, and I think the reason he did He was so passionate uh, about the England job. He was passionate about making England into a great team. Uh, I've not seen that in in many other England managers. Uh, I saw it more in Bobby Robson than anybody else.
1: So we come to where England are in 1992. Peter Shilton and Terry Butcher have retired. Brian Robson after three caps under... Graham Taylor, despite the work that's beginning to take shape at Old Trafford under Alex Ferguson and Robson is still a critical part of that. Brian Robson has his England career brought to an end by Graham Taylor. David Platt had succeeded at Robson in the England midfield and, you know, he was getting the goals that Robson used to get in his pomp. Platt's about to move from Bari to Juventus, a good player, maybe not at the same level as Robson, but had, had Chilton, Butcher and Robson been adequately replaced in those first two years?
0: Well, it's like saying, what um, was Gareth Bale adequately replaced when he left Spurs and will um, Harry Kane be adequately replaced when he leaves Spurs or, or, or Ronaldo when he left Manchester United? It, you're talking about three exceptionally gifted individuals, not just world-class performers, but you know, leaders in the team, uh, particularly Butcher and Brian Robson. You, you can't replace them, They're certainly not like for like. Uh, And that did have a a big influence on what happened to to Graham Taylor. Uh, And, of course, probably as much so, perhaps even more, arguably, what happened to to Gaza. You know, Gaza came back from the World Cup, arguably one of our greatest ever players, possibly the greatest ever player, but still very young. And the progression with Gaza as a central point of the team, um, everyone thought, well, you know, England would be a formidable force again. They, they could have easily won the World Cup in 1990. And what can they achieve going forward as, as, he, gets, as he gets older, more experienced? What, what could England achieve with, with a Paul Gascoigne in their team? Um, but of course, he, got, he, he cropped himself in the FA Cup final. Uh, and we spent months, nearly a year, trying to get him fit again. There were, there were a number of factors which uh, undermined Graham Taylor, I think.
1: If anyone is listening to this and uh, maybe shaking their head at your saying Gascoigne might have been one of our greatest players ever, if not the greatest player ever, his form the year after Italia 90, before the injury, was it was incredible. I mean, it's 30 years ago now, but he 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 was reaching a level that if it hadn't been for the injury... You know Diego Maradona's winding down his career. Roberto Baggio's emerging. There's Romario, but Gascoigne was in that bracket, wasn't he? Going into the nineties, the nineties could well have belonged to him the way he was playing.
0: Well, it was no surprise to me, and one or two others that followed England. We, and in fact, you mentioned the Daily Mail. I think I was on the Daily Mail at the time, and I went to um, the under twenty twenty tournament in Toulon. Uh, and Gascoigne was, was there and again you know he travelled with the team he stayed uh, with them in training and all that you know bump into gaza coming out the lift or going into the lift with him <laughs> yeah. but when you saw him play even at that age in an England shirt not even in the senior level what he was able to do it was no surprise uh, how he was progressing and how he could have progressed is something which I think we, we all regret not seeing Personally, I do. I saw him many times playing at club level, uh, Spurs, and you just think, wow, this is something really different, exceptional. And I've seen all the great players, you know, Zidane, Gullit, who can play midfield, score goals as well. Um, Talk about Brian Robson. I've seen Cruyff play. Uh, You know, he could have been as good as any of those.
1: There were still some. Well, there was still a notable talent in the team. Des Walker had had a brilliant Italian ninety. He's now about to move to Sampdoria, going into Euro ninety two. It's a move that will have a serious impact both on Forrest and Walker, as as the move to Italy doesn't quite work out. At this stage, was he England's most important centre half? Uh,
0: yeah, I mean, I, I, I speak to him quite regularly now. You know, um, uh, he, he wasn't fully surprising. Uh, that he went abroad. He's not the kind of character that would have warmed to that kind of situation. I don't know how he was convinced that it would be. He just had phenomenal feet, speed and the recovery. And as a defender, again, you know, I haven't seen very many better defenders in world football in, in all my time in the game, particularly with that awareness and speed. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think you're talking about a lot of key players that conspired uh, against Taylor but uh, having said that you know until he got into the tournament he had a very good record with England.
1: Yeah they'd they gone into the uh, Euros that summer with still I think only one defeat which was to the unified Germany in a friendly as you say they were looking pretty solid. Um, in goal Chris Woods had had to wait patiently to replace uh, Peter Shilton as England's number one. Uh, Woods got the nod as England's number one ahead of David Seaman under Taylor. What was your view on Chris Woods as England's first choice? It's a position that he holds for three seasons.
0: You, you, you had some world-class goalkeepers, did you? Coming from Gordon Banks to Ray Clements to Peter Shilton. Unfortunately, you know, it's not easy to maintain those kind of standards at the, the, the highest level. With England you know it's okay if you're playing Albania but you know if you're playing Germany, France, Italy, Spain and you haven't got a world-class goalkeeper you're at a huge disadvantage.
1: England are in the driving seat for almost all of their qualifying group it's only eight teams at Euro 92 so it's only the top sides that go through Um, They've drawn one all home and away with Ireland, but Ireland, unlike England, had failed to beat Poland in Dublin. So England are in control right until that final game against Poland, and they're trailing 1-0. Gary Lineker grabs a late equaliser for them to make it to Euro 92. Was that maybe an early inkling that something wasn't quite right? Because it seemed to be a rather dramatic qualification when for most of it, they'd been in control of the group.
0: I would say not, and I'll tell you why, because there's always a drama with England in qualifying for every World well, Cup or European Championships. There's always a drama when they start the tournament. They, they never start well. Um, uh, I wouldn't be surprised. They don't start well in, in the Euros just about to come up in a few days' time. Um, it, it's it's always the case with England. There's always a big drama. Then they scrape through and suddenly uh, they they progress during it, through a tournament. If they can progress through a tournament... To the later stages, they suddenly get their act together. I think, for me, I think England teams are not great travellers. There's problems with it. They're bored. There's got to be some fun and games behind the scenes. There's got to be something to entertain them. Let's bring in some comedian or someone to make a speech or play table tennis or all the other countries get down to work. They train three times a day. You know, they're there to try and win a tournament. England seem to be progressively players are bored, uh, as if they're on some kind of holiday, but without their partners or friends and not many drinking sessions, unless Brian Robson or Terry Butcher were around. But, you know, there seems to be a complete different mentality with an England team than there is with some of the top European sides, for me.
1: The draw for the Euros is held in January 92, and Graham Taylor gets his wish. He'd hoped to avoid Germany and the Dutch. In the uh, group stages, Scotland uh, draw the short straw, they end up playing the Netherlands, Germany and uh, the CIS, formerly the Soviet Union. The draw though is kind to Taylor and England, it places them in what looked like the slightly easier group at the time. They were going to be opening against Yugoslavia and we'll come to that uh, shortly. You've got the French appearing in their first international tournament since uh, Mexico 86 and uh, Michel Platini has rebuilt them and there was a lot of interest in seeing what he might have done with that French team. And you've got Sweden. They weren't going to be easy to roll over. England didn't have a great record against Sweden. Sweden had topped the qualifying group going into Italian 90 that involved England and Thomas Brolin, seen as a something of a joke figure after his time at Leeds, but at this point in the early 90s, he's emerging as one of the world's top players. How did you see the draw for England? Were you thinking the semi-finals are a must?
0: Optimism runs riot, doesn't it, prior to a tournament in the media. So everyone is gung-ho, waving the flags, particularly the tabloid press, one, one part of. And it's, you know, England are going to win it easily against these uh, foreign foreigners who've got no idea how to play the game. There was nothing daunting about that group, was there? You know, we weren't playing Argentina and Brazil for, for the sake, you know. And, and of course, I'm sure you're going to come to it. We never actually played Yugoslavia. And we, we ended up playing a team that uh, were, were all on the piss, weren't they? And, uh, on the beach, having a nice whale of a time. Uh, no, it, 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 it looked on paper to be quite an easy ride.
1: England, though they'd had favourable Euro draws, and you'll know more about this than me. In 1980, they were expected to finish in the in the top two in a group uh, containing hosts Italy, uh, Spain, and Belgium. And Belgium surprised everyone there. Euro '88, they were expected to fight out the the top two spots with the Dutch. It didn't work out there. And you've talked just now about optimism, England fans being optimistic. I wonder, though, as a result of the unexpected run to the semi finals at Italia 90, which should have probably been uh, the final given how they played against West Germany that night. Was there some, in addition to the optimism, was there a bit of complacency this time given what England had just achieved two years earlier?
0: Probably. Um, but I, I think that optimism is fueled by the media, particularly the tabloid press. And um, I hold my hands up and, and uh, admit that's exactly what the media wanted to achieve. And, 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 and although the media has changed and, and, and the attitudes have changed, it to me seems very similar now to what it was then. You know, there, there's no real proper assessment of, of the opposition. There's no real assessment of the England team. We're coming up to a new Euros and, and we've had a couple of friends Uh, albeit resting key players you know the other nations aren't resting key players they're properly building up towards the tournament because they're given the time to do so England is never ever given the time to do so I mean we're always on the back foot and a disadvantage before we start I mean it's hopeless really that the way the game is run in England it it, it is just not really designed to to enhance the England national team Never, never was The Premier League was actually formed with a promise to do exactly that, to help the England national team. It it, it was a fob-off. Once they got their foot in the door with the Premier League, um, that that little small print about helping England team and only having 18 or even 16 teams in the Premier League, everyone conveniently forgot that, and the FA were, were put to one side. So the Premier League aren't interested in the England team. The clubs aren't interested. One or two managers would be quite happy if their players didn't go at all. They're proud that they do, but they want to be fresh for next season. You know, you you know for sure one or two are going to pick up some nasty injuries. So uh, it it isn't geared up for international football in our country at all.
1: It's interesting you say that because curiously in 91, uh, researching for this episode with yourself, I remembered that the first division that season had reverted back to 22 teams. So for the 91-92 season. So the national team, every chance they're going to be playing an international tournament the following summer and suddenly the first division's gone back up to 22 clubs, which was a very strange decision.
0: Well, particularly, as as I just referenced, why the Premier League was formed. But then, of course, once once it's it's got up and running, no one wants to leave the Premier League. So all this nonsense about, you know, playoffs in relegation and, and then more teams being relegated, you know, three, four... It all went out the window. It, it, it was a farce uh, and nothing's been rectified to change that situation since 1992 and the formation of the Premier League. I, I can't reiterate it enough and, and but people need to realise it. English football is not geared up to the international team. It doesn't care about the international team and would rather do without it.
1: Gary Lineker had succeeded Brian Robson as England captain under Graham Taylor and was in some of the best form of his England career in the first 18 months under the new manager. Going into the Euros though, Lineker had been left out of the starting lineup for a couple of the friendlies. I think Shearer had come in for his debut at Wembley against France in February of 92. Lineker was also left out of the friendly in Czechoslovakia the following month. He's trying to get the goal that he needs to equal Bobby Charlton's international scoring record. And there's that failed penalty against Brazil at Wembley. The relationship between manager and captain at this point it starts to come across as as a bit strained, and there are a couple of quotes from Graham Taylor that I'll come to later in this episode. Do we know what was going on? Was there a problem between the manager and the captain going into into the Euros?
0: Yeah, yeah, there was. There was a big problem because Gary Lineker had a great influence on the team, you know, for obvious reasons. You know, he, he progressed to the point where. You would have such a big influence with his, with his fantastic record and what he was achieving and had achieved. But, you know, Graham Taylor actually was a very good manager. People lose sight of the fact, particularly at club level, and he could see that Gary Lineker was losing that half a yard of pace, picking up one or two injuries, wasn't as sharp as he had been, peak of his career, possibly coming towards the end of his international career, and he had an absolute gem of a new striker coming through in Alan Shearer. Now, I don't think Graham Taylor felt that he could play the two of them together. They weren't compatible, uh, although he did try it uh, and it didn't work. His preference was to bring in the younger player. Now, his problem was how to ease out the England captain and, and the record goal scorer. And that wasn't going to be easy. So he was phasing in Shearer, trying to phase out Minica, And it was quite clear come the turn of the year, that his preference would have been to go into the tournament with Shearer as his number one striker. That was not easy to achieve. And I think he should have actually made up his mind and done it. But Linnick also had a great presence with the media. Um, He'd been around a long time. He'd saved England many times. He he had an accord with the media. And he, rather than Taylor, had the media on his side. So it wasn't an easy situation. I think that was his most difficult situation. And I think that... um, Garanini could sense what was going on and wasn't happy about it and was making every effort behind the scenes to ensure it didn't happen.
1: Partly a situation, though, maybe of Taylor's own making in that he'd made him captain in 1990. I guess maybe that was because he hadn't foreseen the emergence of Shearer and he thought maybe Lineker might be in better shape going into 92. I mean, the move worked out. Lineker was in brilliant form for England in 1991, but there's certainly a slight tailing off in, in that following season. But a problem of Taylor's own making in that he gave Lineker that extra power by giving him the captaincy? I,
0: I, I think it was a difficult scenario for Taylor to make someone captain and then strip him of being a captain very shortly afterwards. It would it would, it would smell of making a big error. Uh, and it would have caused a division in the camp. It would have caused a friction within the camp, which he didn't want to achieve. So it's a difficult balancing act. Uh, and that was one of, I think, one of his biggest problems. And I, I don't think he knew how to resolve it. and probably few managers would it was it was a difficult scenario for
1: him and lennick is still only 31 at this time he had 10 world cup goals behind him he'd scored 28 goals in 35 games for spurs in that final division 1 season a campaign that had been interrupted by off the field issues with a serious illness of his um, his first child he was still formidable, but it's interesting that I think you, you were saying a few minutes ago that maybe not just at international level, but at club level, he was losing a bit of pace. Do you think he went to Japan at the right time? Because I always thought, well, he's only 31. It's a really strange move. Okay, there's, there's the money he's going to get. But aside from the money, this guy's just got 28 goals. Why well, is he going? I went
0: well, out to Nagoya with him, actually, on the flight out to Japan. So he, he, he had... And, and he kept it under wraps as much as he could, but he had a, 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 an ongoing toe problem. And um, he knew it was time that the his time was limited at the top and he took the option to go to Japan. Uh, and, and as you may recall, hardly played any games when he got there. So um, no, it, it was, uh, Alan Shearer was on the rise and he was a formidable goal scorer, And it, it, it was his time, I think, at the turn of that year for him to become England's number one striker. And that was the difficulty that Taylor had in how to manage that. And he, and he couldn't.
1: We'll come to the paucity of the 92 squad shortly. But first, let's look at the injuries which laid waste to the squad. Eula followed the national team probably for over 40 years. And, you know, you'll remember the injury dramas that tend to play out with England, Keegan Brookin in Spain, Robson 86 and 90 Beckham Rooney the 92 squad I mean the injuries just lay waste to that squad it's incredible the amount of right backs they lose just prior to the tournament we're we're going into Euro 2020 with three right backs might have been four but the 92 squad couldn't actually get a right back in they're going in I think with they end up playing Keith Curl and David Batty at, at right back in their games There was Gary Stevens was also injured. He was a very experienced fullback. I can't remember Paul Parker. I know that he'd been excellent at Italia 90. He'd moved to United and played well. I can't remember if he'd been excluded by Taylor or if he was injured going into Euro 92. But there was Rob Jones as well that had a breakthrough season but was out with shin splints. Gary Charles hadn't quite uh, kicked on from his England debut a, a year previously. So they're going into an international tournament without a specialist right back. Did you think, looking at the squad that summer, that that was going to be an issue or did you think they'd be able to get by?
0: Well, uh, the, the first two matches, they drew nil-nil. So, uh, two clean sheets. You wouldn't worry about too much about their uh, defence. Uh, and it, it, in many ways, I uh, just, just see the same errors over and over again. We're worrying about four right-backs as we go into this new tournament. No, I, I don't think all the problems about right-back in, in, in Graham Taylor's at the time was the issue I think more of the issue is, is trying to find the right formula and in, in going forward creating scoring goals you know being on the front foot That's what you need to do in tournaments you need to be progressive you know you need to be an exciting best team out there you've got to play with a lot of courage and a lot of imagination and win the tournament we, we, we never actually quite do that until really at the last minute and then we get a post or just can't get it you know miss a penalty it, it's all kind of like for me For England, it just always comes too late.
1: Eight days before England's opening game against Denmark, John Barnes had injured his Achilles in the friendly with Finland. That's an injury which effectively finishes his days as as a winger stroke forward. He's been out for much of the season at Liverpool, as Gascoigne has at Spurs. So they weren't really, I mean, it would have been a real surprise had he been fit for Euro 92. Mark Wright drops out late on. And that, I think, causes a club v country row. And I think England then try to get Tony Adams in, but they can't. UEFA don't allow them to get Tony Adams in. And so they're going into, for some reason that year, it was 20-man squads, but England are going in with a 19-man squad. Just a very strange uh, situation. Do you remember why UEFA had overruled the inclusion of Tony Adams?
0: (laughs) It's a long time ago, so no, I don't. But, you know... uh... I think we now have this force majeure, so if if, if things like that happen again, you know, you can bring players in. But why they didn't, I don't know. But, you know, um, English football, the FA have never been high on the uh, Christmas card list of UEFA and FIFA for many, many reasons. And and if there was any reason not to help the England team, they'd probably say, well, you know, that's the rule at the time. We're not bending it for for you guys.
1: Still to come on When Shorts Were Short.
0: I'm afraid he couldn't resist those digs because, you know, with, with that half a yard of speed gone, Gary Dinick had become the player. Everyone criticised him in the first place, which is a bit unfair, He'd been a bit of a goal hanger. But, you know, he had incredible speed um, and he was a formidable striker. But without that a yard, half a yard of speed, he became less effective for the team.
1: There are injuries, but there's also quite a bit of talent that's just been left behind, been disregarded by Graham Taylor. There's the likes of Chris Swaddle, who was outstanding at Italia 90. He's had three brilliant years in France. There's Peter Beardsley. Both of those players are going to light up the early years of the um, Premier League. There's Ian Wright has had a brilliant debut season at Arsenal, and he's left behind. David Seaman, we mentioned earlier, doesn't travel He's not part of the party. Paul Ince, now established as an outstanding midfielder at United, almost turning 25. I think he's 25 when he finally wins his first cap. And you have players like, you know, decent club players, Andy Sinton, Carlton Palmer, Neil Webb at United, Ince's teammate, who Webb hadn't really been the same player since that, I think, injury against Sweden three years earlier. Who were the players for you that should have gone, that were fit, who should have been in that, Squad and why do you think they weren't part of Graeme Taylor's plans?
0: It, it, it sounds very strange when you read those names out, but I don't think at the time anyone was suggesting that he made any wrong choices. I don't think that, as far as I can recall, I don't think anyone was criticising the players he left out, players he brought in. I think, I, I think the guy has always struck me as fair-minded, and he would look at players that would fit into his team strategy. I don't, I don't think. There was anything malicious or, or, or anything going on behind the scenes, in particular. But he, he would have chosen the players that would have suited him and his style of play.
1: Can you remember what this particular period of English football was like in the late eighties, early nineties, in terms of young talent coming through? I mean, we now hear that we've got all these all this outstanding young talent coming through the academies. We're seeing a lot of that talent now in the England team. Was there a bit of a drought in English football at this time in terms of emerging talent?
0: I just think English football st- still was very much in the dark ages you know as far as the de- you know development through the through the junior teams and how they played and the kind of like the the kind of like when they talk about the DNA and play playing all the same way and coming through the ranks and developing the young talents as they do in their academies these days um, I don't think there was a, a much uh, investment in the academies I don't think the training Facilities, the top, even the top clubs were, were uh, as excellent as they are now, with a massive new investment that foreign owners have brought in. Not saying that foreign owners have been particularly you know, great for the game per se, but you know, certain things, you know, investment in the training facilities and the academies, have, have improved immensely. And I think you do get greater emphasis on the young players coming through at club level. And, and filtering through to the England team, that's for sure. But it wasn't without young players coming through, because Gascoigne was pretty young when he, when he broke into the England team. But I remember many discussions with Bobby Robson, you know, why, why don't you pick Paul Gascoigne? You know? But uh, there was a, um, a, a lack of trust in young players at that time. People England managers went for established international players. Also, we had um, issues with the supporters. That was still prevalent. Behind the scenes, there was always problems whether the England team would be thrown out of the tournament because of the behaviour of the fans. And that all all had a knock-on effect in the media, perception of what was going on. And and it it did filter through to the England camp. There's no question about it. It had had an adverse effect.
1: So, as mentioned earlier, 10 days before the tournament commences, Yugoslavia are are thrown out, Denmark replaced them. And... This wasn't quite the exciting mid-80s Piontek Denmark side. It wasn't that flamboyant side that wowed everybody in the summer of 86 in Mexico. This was a more pragmatic, less flaky incarnation of the Danes, less gifted than Yugoslavia. But retrospectively, with Taylor having prepped for the opener against Yugoslavia, how much of a problem was that for England?
0: I, I, I thought none. Um, um, really, I think the uh, the way England teams at that stage prepared for games, you know, they they did do their homework. No question about it. They knew what the opposition was like. They had quickly reassessed what Denmark was like. Whether a bit of complacency would have crept in, considering you know everyone was talking about Denmark being on the beach. But look, you know, I, I, I go back to, to oh I mean the Mexico World Cup when uh, our first game was against Portugal. Uh, the England team was staying up the, up, up the mountain in Monterey, uh, and the Portuguese were, were 200 yards down the road. The Portuguese arrived for the tournament in, in dispute with their FA over World Cup bonuses and refused to train the entire week before the England match. And in the England camp, we were going, I mean, you know, this is going to be a bit of a push up. They, you know, they're all sitting in their armchairs or sitting on sunbathing and are down tools and won't train. Of course, of course, Portugal were brilliant in the opening game and couldn't beat them. So, um, you know, it, <laughs> the only surprise is, is the tournaments always throw up a surprise. And, and for me, I think England are always ill-prepared for that.
1: Peter Schmeichel had just spent his first season at United going into Euro 92. And I do remember watching the games on the BBC and ITV and the jury was still out on him, which really surprised me. But I, th- I think it was... Euro 92 and particularly the semi-final Denmark against Holland, possibly the best game of the tournament that finally showed us just how exceptional a keeper Schmeichel was. Um, You mentioned earlier that, you know, England always starts slowly in tournaments. I I wanted to ask you, this game finishes nil-nil and maybe the country expected more because of the Danes' late arrival um, maybe the, the result just left everyone feeling a bit flat. You, you'd been around the block with a national team. You'd seen this time and again. At this stage, were you worried?
0: No. <laughs> it was par for the course. You know, you wouldn't say worried, but, you know, it, it, it was like you build it all up. Uh, England are, are going to be world beaters. They've got so many good players. And talked talk about how many players came out, but even so, you know, the quality of, of, of English football is, is at a certain level. It, it, and there's a lot of players at that level. You know, we talk about Paul Gascoigne being exceptional, talking about Gordon Banks being exceptional, and Peter Shilton, Brian Robson, Terry Butcher. Yeah, no, there are exceptional players. Gary Lineker was a great goal scorer. Uh, Anna Shearer was a great goal scorer. But generally, they're all of the same level. And whether you've got four right backs all of the same level, or five centre halves at the same level, you know, you really need three or four standout world-class players if you're going to win a tournament, and England are always short of that. For me, despite how much you build them up, it's no surprise when it's a damp squib. And then all, all that happens is, is everyone, you know, the media, the fans, will turn on England because they expected so much more. So the first game is, is 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 kind of like a benchmark. But for England, it's it shows up a number of issues. For me, it shows up the lack of preparation time, the lack of national pride and commitment to the England team in in the way they're preparing in so much as the the way the season is is, is Canada season is is taking shape in other countries given more time to prepare and then when the players arrive they are committed to winning the tournament or playing well in the tournament or enhancing themselves in their careers whereas the England players are always worried about the card school or who, who, who's going to win the darts tournament And um, let's see some, you know, inspirational figure coming in to amuse us. It's no surprise that England always starts slowly because they're so ill-prepared.
1: The game with Denmark finishes goalless. Is there an element now, or I mean, right after the tournament where England could say, well, hang on a sec. Yes, it was nil-nil against Denmark, but they went on to win the tournament. So retrospectively, that that was a decent result.
0: Got to clutch at some straws, I suppose.
1: The next game, uh, France England, another goalless draw in Malmö. Uh, there was trouble, I think, uh, before the game between the fans. You mentioned that that was a recurring issue uh, with England games. Batty came in at right back for Keith Curl. It was one thing this England team not being brilliant to watch, but it was a bit of a surprise that a, a French team managed by Michel Platini, part of that glorious '84 team, they weren't too easy on the eye as well, were they?
0: No, I, I think I think. Um... Some of the best teams play their way into a tournament. They're not particularly bothered, uh, like England are. You build them up. They don't play so well in the first game or two, and then, and then you know all hell breaks loose with the other other countries. There, they actually know the best way to win a tournament is, is, is to build up your confidence and your strategy and your team play um, and your preparation in the early games. Their key, the key is not to lose. Uh, I didn't really was surprised by that. I think France would have thought uh, holding England to a nil-nil would have been a good result for
1: them. One of the players whose form was outstanding under Graham Taylor for England was Stuart Pierce, like Gascoigne, another player who seemed to have gone up several levels after Italian 90. And uh, he hits the French woodwork with one of his trademark free kicks. Then he's involved in... a. Uh, an infamous incident with Basil Bowley, where I think he gets headbutted off the ball, the referee misses it. And that's maybe one of the uh, more memorable incidents from, from a game I think that Barry Davis described in his autobiography as one of the most sterile defensive internationals he'd ever seen. So for the fourth consecutive international tournament, England have failed to win their first two games. Now, again, you're a veteran England watcher. You've seen this. You've seen them in many tournaments and you've seen them get out of this Were you now starting to think, though, hang on a sec, I'm not sure these guys can get out of this. I'm not sure there's enough here to get out of this situation.
0: Well, going on past records and past experiences, no, you think um, they dig themselves in a hole and they always seem to dig themselves out in the final qualifying game. And Gary Lineker has been the one often to achieve that. And no, he was playing his final international match. He'd copped up badly with that penalty, hilariously so. And this was his last chance to equal Bobby Charlton's record. But unfortunately, there was a suspicion that the guy was past his sell-by date. And Alan Shearer was really the one that should have been out there in the centre of the attack. But um, with, with all the sentiment leaning towards Linica, you could see why he started and was, was out to break or equal the record. And it was Sweden. It, was, it wasn't Brazil. No, it wasn't Argentina. It wasn't a dire Italian team that make sure it would be another 0-0. It was Sweden. Now, obviously, we'd had a bad record against Sweden. But, you know, it wasn't one of the great powerhouses of world football, was it? You know, but for me, again, it's kind of like the, 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 the mentality, the mental strength of the England team. And probably where Graham Taylor fell down on it. as a novice England manager. There was too much harping back to what Sweden had done. And what Sweden can do, rather than what we could do to Sweden. And there was, all, there was lots of things going on behind the scenes. People who were, were in Sweden, who were half in the Swedish camp, half in the England camp, giving advice to Graham Taylor about how best to play and who, where were the weaknesses. And he was had a strategy to, to uh, exploit those weaknesses. But uh, as we all know, you know, some guy, chubby little striker manages to score a goal and uh, uh, out we go.
1: You mentioned there something interesting because Graeme Taylor was criticised, I think it was after the game, for making mention of how the Swedish players looked bigger, they were fitter, they were stronger. Four years later, in a Champions League game, Alex Ferguson made the same reference to uh, the Juventus players. Was there, do you think, was this the point where we were realising that the Heisel ban, the, the, the gap between English clubs and the rest of Europe, had narrowed and that you know fitness strength we'd now been surpassed and this is where we were really finding out what level football was at now what it required from its players in terms of diet fitness
0: yeah well I think Graham Graham Taylor was on top of that in in the sense that he was aware it was happening it wasn't actually at that point where you could have done much about it Uh, I, I remember one famous press conference we all gathered and it was in this hall that uh, the fa had set up and it was like it was almost like the houses of commons so you you, you could go down one side and the opposition went down the other side and graham taylor sat down like the speaker on this great big chair in, in in the middle of this hall so we all went down the sides and he was in the middle and we were just waiting for him and everyone was laughing saying well, it's like the house of commons or you know uh, and when he came in, we have got the white handkerchiefs out and waved all the white <laughs> handkerchiefs at him. And I think that wailed him up a bit. He then came out with his famous uh, line about how Gaza was refuelling. Now, to hand it to, to, to Graham Taylor, he, he was slightly ahead of his time. Uh, you know, his father was in journalism. He, he, he hired his own PR. So he had his personal PR, not just the, the, the growing PR within the FA. It was still quite small then there was a growing pr he, he wanted his own pr and and to give him advice about how to handle the media and it, it, it kind of like work you'd come and see four of us three or four of us the senior football writers and basically this the guy would say to us well, what are you trying to achieve today what you know we know you're looking for a headline. So rather than try and trip the England manager up, as we always do, you know, a few few soft questions to start with, and then we hammer him with the same question from all directions and he gives us the headline we're looking for. So what headline are you looking for? We, we'd say, look, we, we, this, is the, this is what we, we want. So he'd go back and brief the Ingram manager and he was aware not to trip himself up. So when those questions came in, uh, he had the right answers and we were happy with the answers. And went off and it made life a lot simpler. Generally speaking, you know, the Football Association, the setup of the England team was still very much way behind the rest of, the, of, of Europe and the rest of the world.
1: Going back to the, the strain that the, the relationship between manager and, and captain was under, this is the game Sweden where Taylor famously takes Lineker off 30 minutes from time. Just after the France game, Taylor had made a, a very cryptic remark concerning Lineker. He contributed exactly as I thought he would. These days, a comment like that would be everywhere. I'm trying to think of a relationship between manager and captain at that level that seemed to be as troubled as this one was towards the end. And after the Brazil friendly, where Lineker had missed that penalty, Taylor was quoted as saying, you could argue that we played Brazil with 10 men. And it's not necessarily specific to Lineker, though it was thought it was relating to Lineker. So just reading those, and based on what you've said about Taylor you know, really wanted to bring Shearer through, it does kind of tally up. He's gone into this tournament with his greatest striker, but someone he feels, you know, maybe shouldn't have been there.
0: I'm afraid he couldn't resist those digs because, you know, with that half a yard of speed gone, Gary Inic had become the player. Everyone criticised him in the first place, which is a bit unfair. he been a bit of a goal hanger. Uh, you know, he had incredible speed um, and he, he was a formidable striker. Without that a yard, half-yard of speed, he became less effective for the team. Not that he was very effective for the team at his peak, really, but because you know, he played for himself to score goals. That's why he scored so many. And Taylor's work ethic and, and t- team structure was that he wanted a united team. That's why when he talked about some of the players he might have left out, you know, he was looking for a team rather than a group of individuals and never ever fitted together. So for me, it all harps back to the turn of the year. I think it was a French friendly at the turn of the year that he should have actually made up his mind and brought Shearer in and stuck with him. But there would have been such an outcry. He knew there'd been an outcry that it would have been hard to handle that outcry. And the whole rest of the build up to the tournament would have been, why did you leave out Lineker? And and, and would Lineker have even gone to the tournament if, if, if he'd have been on the bench? So... Yeah, it was sad to see Gary Linico ending his international career the way he did, being you know hooked ten minutes before the end. But he wasn't contributing to the game; didn't look as though he was going to score. But he wasn't getting any service, and 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 that's that's the problem. You know, we, we you know it, it was inevitable; it was, we were going to end in tears for for, for for Taylor.
1: I know that Italian ninety, that team had to be broken up partly through the retirement of the likes of Shilton, Robson and Butcher. There was still, as, as I said earlier, Waddle and Beardsley knocking around. Barnes and Gascoigne were injured. I remember a friendly, no, not a friendly, a, a European Championship qualifier in 91. England beat Turkey 1-0, but the side was so different from Italia 90. And I, I couldn't get my head around how the team had changed so much in less than a year was Taylor right to break up that side to move on from Italia ninety and go off in a different direction did he need to do that
0: uh, really I don't think he had any choice he's one about all the injuries what happened to Gascoigne you know uh, it, it, it kind of like evolves in an England team there, there's always far too many injuries you know uh, Southgate's team now that bears very little resemblance to to the World Cup team that did so well you know because you've got lots of good young players that have come through and the team is different and it's For me, I think it's arguably slightly better. You know, I think they've got some really good good young players.
1: Was the Euro 92 exit the point at which Taylor should have gone or, like Bobby Robson, did he deserve a shot at redemption? Bobby Robson's disastrous Euro 88, Italia 90, a hero. Did Taylor deserve that?
0: uh, Probably not, but, you know, he hadn't been around that long. Um, And again, I don't think there was, you know, a a massive queue of of candidates. We hadn't really got into the era of getting all the foreign coaches in yet. So I think, you know, but also immediately after the Euros, you're all straight into a World Cup qualifying group. uh, And and there's not a lot of time to change. So I think, you know, give him a chance to qualify. Was that a right decision? Obviously, in retrospect, it wasn't a complete disaster. Uh, And we didn't go to the World Cup. Uh, it, it was a bit of a break for, for, for us covering international World Cup football because it, we were still at the height of the hooligan problem. Fans fought, you know, were, were such a massive distraction and, and, and such a difficult situation to control. In fact, you couldn't control it. So that was the World Cup, my only World Cup, in fact, without an England team. It was quite refreshing you know, to, to go and watch loads of different teams play and, and travel around, no trouble, and watch some quality football.
1: Finally. The Sun had turned uh, Taylor's head into a turnip as part of its headline for the, after the Sweden-England game. And Taylor was vilified for substituting Lineker in that final game. Was Taylor ever able to live that down? I know he's, he's still England manager for another 18 months, but that must have made his job incredibly difficult.
0: Well, that's why it was an impossible job, because it made it impossible. Not, not the fact that it was impossible to manage the England team. I don't think that was impossible. But you had all those ingredients and all those problems we've been discussing about lack of preparation, lack of time, the fact that Premier League couldn't care about the Union team. It all builds up against him, but this was personal, and it was the first time in his life he'd ever suffered like that. Or previously, it was just like how great this guy is, taking little old Watford from the fourth division to runners-up in the old first division. What, what, what a phenomenal achievement that is. It, it just had so much praise heaped on him, and he had a You know, an owner in Elton John that loved him and and English football admired him, admired what Watford was doing and and, and playing in such a a, a progressive way. It it wasn't just all long ball football, you know, they had had two gifted wingers. So, um, no, I think uh, it it was hard for him to take on a personal level. And and because the abuse that he was taking was was relatively new, Bobby Robson suffered quite a bit, but nowhere near as personal as Taylor.
1: Thank you for your time, Harry. Uh, Tell our listeners what you're up to these days, where they can find your work. I know you've written tons and tons of books, but what's the uh, best way for people to find your work and whether you're on any social media that you want to share with us? I'm
0: I'm on uh, uh, Football Legends 100, F Legends 100. That's on Twitter. And then you'll find all details about my book. Brought one out last week, Chelsea winning the Champions League. How uh, they did it in 2012 and how they did it 2021, and uh, that's now our number one bestseller in a matter of a couple of days. Got one about um, how Leicester won the uh, FA Cup. That's that's out now, and they're all all available on Amazon.
1: Thank you to Harry Harris. Links to Harry's work will be up in the show notes along with Euro 92 links. Please do rate, review and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts. If you're an Apple user, that does remain the easiest way for the show to grow. Thank you all for listening. Thank you too to listener Richard Mancini. Appreciate the email, Richard. Good to know that people are enjoying the podcast. I suspect if Richard had hung on to the pair of 1991 FA Cup Final Spurs Umbro shorts he once had with what they might have fetched on eBay these days, he could have ended up owning some yacht and listening to this show while sunning himself the yacht moored somewhere off Monte Carlo. I don't know, just riffing here. The podcast can be followed on both Twitter and Instagram at Short and facebook.com forward slash shortswithshort. If you want to join the group page, please do. If you want to drop the show an email, you can get me shortswithshort at 1607westeg.com. All my work is at com. Thank you for your time. The artwork is by Tom Hadfield. The music is 80 synthpop by Toto Cyberspace. I've been Daniel Ruiz Tyson. This has been When Shorts Were Short. If the shorts weren't short, we don't talk about it.